Well, geologists, as the story goes, were drilling a deep hole in Siberia several years ago. And this was not a, an ordinary hole, not a simple well that went down a couple hundred feet. This was a very deep hole. Went down nine miles, the story goes. And when they reached, reached about nine miles, all of a sudden the resistance of the drilling stopped. The drill bit no longer had anything to resist against. You know, when you're drilling a hole in the wall with your drill because you're going to mount something and then you get through whatever it was. Oh, there's, there's a hole behind there. Oh, I, I've reached the end of the stud. Uh, I've gone through the sheetrock, whatever the case might be. That's what happened, according to the story. And they thought, huh, the earth must be hollow. And apparently, they, they happened to have nine miles of cable that they could hook a microphone to. And so they lowered this cable nine miles. It was really great that they had that cable with them. Nine miles, and, and as they listened to the sound from nine miles below, it wasn't what they were expecting. All of them were atheists, and when they heard the sound from that hole, they realized that there's a God and there's a hell, because they were listening to the sound of hell. That's the story. There are different versions of it. You can read it online. You can even go, as I did, and you can find a YouTube video where you can hear that recording or what is purported to be that recording. Now, now there, I don't believe the story. There are a lot of reasons outside of the Bible not to believe the story, but it does raise an interesting point that many people wonder. What does the Bible say about hell? Are people somewhere nine miles below us, trapped and being tortured? Is hell an ongoing and present reality? What does Jesus have to say about this topic? Let's pray as we get into it. Dear God, we need your wisdom to, ex to help us understand your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we talked about what did Jesus teach about Death. And real briefly, we learned that Jesus taught that death is a what? A sleep. It's a sleep with no dreams. It's a sleep with no activities. It's a rest in the grave until what time? Until the second coming, until the last day, until the first resurrection. No conscious activity, no thought going on, no going to heaven or hell at death, just resting in the grave. And if you missed last week's sermon, please pick up a CD, which we might have in the lobby, or go online to the webpage that Stephen described, because we put our sermons online there. Because you're going to want to listen to last week's. If you missed it, you'll be wondering, what's going on today, perhaps? So we left a couple of unanswered questions. Well, what about the second death? Because we saw that Jesus identified two types of deaths. He said, whoever believes in me, though they die, they shall live, and whoever believes in me will never die, referring to that second type of death. So today we launch into that topic, and also we realize that there are two types of resurrections. So, first question is, what is the second death? And in short, according to the Bible, the second death is the death you don't wake up from. It's a permanent death. 
And we all know John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his what? Only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not what? Perish. Perish. Now, what does perish mean? Golly? Gael, it means die, right? Yeah. Perishing means die. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So in this verse that we have known since we were kids, it's been there all along. The opposite of living forever is not being tortured forever. The opposite of living forever is simply being dead. Forever. It's been there all along. Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. That's 6.23, rather. 3.23 is all have sinned. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The opposite of eternal life is not being tortured forever, but simply being dead forever. By the way, it says that, that, that we won't perish. Open up your Bibles. We're going to need them again today, as we, do, as we do every week. Go to the end, towards 2 Peter chapter 3, because I was studying out... I wanted to know, how does the Bible use the word perish? Because maybe there's a sneaky usage of perish that somehow means being tortured forever and not what it sounds like, just being dead. Maybe there's a sneaky usage, but I didn't find it. And you know what I found? I found 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. And it says there, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to what? To perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And then in the context of perishing, notice what it says in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything that is in it will be laid bare. And then verse 13, but in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. God says in verse 9, I don't want anybody to perish. And by the way, the whole earth is going to be destroyed with fire, after which it will be made brand new again. Perishing is connected with a fire that consumes. You know, they say that Adventist hell is hotter than Baptist hell because it's hot enough to get the job done. And, and it's kind of a funny, but, but don't miss the point. Our God is not a God, according to the Bible, who will torture somebody forever and ever. Many people have stopped believing in God because they can't harmonize that type of God, and neither can I. What does David say in the Psalms? Give thanks to the Lord for his mercy endures forever, unless you're in hell burning. His mercy endures forever. Well, unless you're one of those people. No. God's mercy allows people to be put out of existence if they choose to reject his offer of mercy. Okay, so what is the second death? Simply put, it's permanent death. Permanent death. Now, when does the second death happen? That's something good we need to know. There's a permanent death, but when does it happen? The simple answer is that, that it happens after the second resurrection. We talked last week, the first resurrection happens when Jesus returns, but the second resurrection, as we find, we'll find out in a moment, happens a little bit later. But go there to, to John chapter 5, briefly. Gospel of John chapter 5. We want to see this verse again. 
John chapter 5 and verse 29. And we'll back it up to verse 28 so it makes a little more sense. It says there, Do not be amazed at this, for the time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Or in other translations, for the resurrection of condemnation. The, the Greek word there represents the word judgment. Judgment is happening. And you see that in verse 24 especially. Verse 24, chapter 5, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. There, there's kind of this parallel thought process going on there. In the first half, it says, if you believe, you'll have eternal life and you're not going to be condemned. So belief and eternal life go together. Rejecting that goes with condemnation. And then in the second half, it says, he who has crossed over from death to life. Again, it's not saying you're not going to die the first death, the death, this is the natural death, the sleep in the grave, if you believe. He's saying you've crossed over from being under the condemnation of that second death, that permanent total death that will happen. If you accept, you're not condemned and you don't experience that second death. So the second death happens after the second resurrection. And it makes sense because if you read Matthew 25, like the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, or rather, if you keep on going and you read the, the, the sheep and the goats, it says very clearly there that the rewards for the righteous come when Jesus returns. It's not until that point. And the same is true. It's not until that point or after that point that the wicked receive their punishment. And we see this in multiple places in Scripture, this clear teaching that punishment comes later, not immediately after death. Or we think about the wheat and the tares. Matthew chapter 13, growing together. Shall we pull them now, Lord? And he said, no, no, no. Let them grow together, and then we'll gather the weeds at the end. At the end. You can read that parable. Matthew 13, verse 41, says the punishment comes later. So, is anybody in hell right now? According to the Bible, according to Jesus, no. Punishment, and there is punishment, but it will come later. Those who die right now, it's death number one, just to rest asleep in the grave, awaiting one of two options, either being woken by Jesus when he returns to go to heaven, or waiting until that second resurrection, one that involves judgment and one that involves punishment. So, then we follow up with a question, well, when is the second resurrection? If the second death happens after the second resurrection, when does it happen? Let's go to Revelation. Jesus didn't come to the world to establish a systematic theology and explain every single minute detail of theology. His purpose primarily was to reveal the love of God and to provide sacrifice for us. So Jesus clues us in that there are two resurrections, but we have to go to Christ's revelation in the book of Revelation to understand when exactly this happens. And Revelation chapter 20 lays it out pretty clear for us. 
When Jesus returns to the world, he takes those who are saved with him. The wicked who are alive on the earth at that time, by the way, are, they basically die because God is so bright. They just can't stand it and they just fall over dead on the face of the earth. And, and we could talk more about that at another time. So everybody is dead who's wicked at the time of Christ's uh, return to the world or after his return. And there's this period that the Bible calls the millennium or the thousand years. And it's only talked about here. Only talked about here. But we get this glimpse. Look at verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 4. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. Remember last week we realized that soul just simply means person generally in the Bible. I saw the people. They're raised back to life now. The martyrs, they're back to life. They're in heaven now. And it continues on. They had not worshipped the beast or his image or received the mark on his forehead or on their hands. They lived, or they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Go to heaven, reign with Jesus for a thousand years. And then verse 5. And in my Bible, it actually has this in parentheses. Because the author is adding a little bit of information that we need to know. But it's not immediately connected. It says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Oh, so the wicked who are dead, they aren't raised until after the thousand years. The second resurrection happens a thousand years after the return of Jesus to the world. Are you following me still? More or less? Jesus comes back to the world, the righteous dead are raised, the righteous living go to heaven. They're there for a thousand years, doing some awesome things that we talked about in our prophecy seminar. The wicked who are alive when Jesus returns, they fall over because Christ is so bright and powerful that they just die. But then after a thousand years, the second resurrection happens. The resurrection of the wicked. You'll notice in reference to what comes before the parenthetical statement in verse 5, it says this is the first resurrection, referring to those who had been raised at the start of the thousand years. Verse 6, blessed and holy are those who have a part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So that's the righteous. Now look at what happens in verse 11. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is what? Is the second death. So the second death is the lake of fire. This judgment if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And this is a very sad scene. This is a strange act for God to have to destroy people whom he created. But ultimately, for those who reject God's mercy time and time and time again in his life, you know, if he, had, if he decided to bring them to heaven, they wouldn't enjoy it. 
Because rejecting God, having to be in his presence forever, would be hell for them. It really would. So God, in his mercy, allows them to be put out of an existence. And by the way, Jesus died the second death for us. Do you believe that? What's interesting to me, as I think about the story of Christ on the cross, is there were no flames when Jesus was on the cross. There were no flames, but yet he still died the second death. To me, as I read this, I believe that there will be flames, but I wonder if the flames are actually part of God's mercy. Because the second death is is actually this total separation from God, something that just tears you apart and is so painful that I wonder if the flames are a way for God to put people out of their misery, realizing that they could have been there, realizing all the mistakes of their past, and yet not even repenting or wanting to repent from them. We could think more on that topic. But notice what happens after chapter 20. We come to chapter 21. There's fire, the second death, but it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. As we saw in 2 Peter chapter 3, after fire comes a total rebuilding of the world. So that means that, that hell is actually an event that happens called the lake of fire, or the second death, but it has an end. Praise God it has an end, because God is going to make that earth into something new again. Are you following me? So, so the torture and the sense of agony doesn't continue. It just lasts as long as life lasts. And I don't think that's going to be very long for most people. Now, people will be judged according to what they deserve, but I don't think it's going to be a very long event for most. Okay, so here's what we've learned so far. Number one, the second death is a permanent death, a death from which there's no resurrection. It's the, it points to the event of hellfire, which as we saw in Revelation 20, is the lake of fire. But praise God, there's an end to it. The world is purged and cleansed of sin, and then God builds it over again. He makes it new again. Uh, This event happens at the end of the thousand years, second resurrection, and after that, all things are made new. Jesus said in John 8, 51 and 52, whoever believes in me, who believes my word, will not taste death. He wasn't saying, if you believe and you're a Christian, you're not going to die the first death. Poor Lloyd, he believed in Jesus, and he died the first death this week. But we believe we'll see him again. Amen? Amen. Jesus here is talking in in John 8 about the second death. You don't have to even taste it if you believe me and accept me. And we saw on a previous Sabbath that there will probably even be people who were accepting God in their heart without even realizing who God is because they were following the light that was revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. So God's trying to get as many people in as he can. So now having said all this, we need to come back and look at a couple of issues. Rich man and Lazarus. We need to look at some of the the language that Jesus uses that kind of gets us tripped up. 
and we say, well, yeah, I see what you're saying there, but what about this story here? What about that passage there? Well, let's take a look at it. Rich man and Lazarus, real quick. Jesus told a parable. It's only found in Luke. He's telling a story about a guy who's rich and then a poor man named Lazarus. The rich guy, he dies, and in the story, he goes straight to a place of torment. In Luke, it's called Hades. Now, it's interesting. I looked up every single instance of Hades being used in the Greek. It's only used once in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it just means Sheol, which is the, the Hebrew word for grave there. But almost all the time, at least the majority of the time, in the clear passages, Hades simply represents the grave. It just represents the grave. And we actually just saw that in Revelation 20, because it says death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Well, if Hades meant hell, it wouldn't make any sense to say death and hell were cast into hell. Does that make sense to you? And it also said that death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. So most of the time, Hades is just a word used in the New Testament to represent the grave. But it's interesting because in the ritual and Lazarus, the word Hades is used to represent a place of torment. And so already we're, we're noticing, well, that's an odd usage of this term. And it tells us there's something a little different about the story. Something that's not quite fitting within the normal understanding in the story. So in the story, the rich man goes down to this place of torment called Hades, and he's really uncomfortable because there are flames there. It's really hot there. Lazarus is taken to Abraham's bosom, as the text says, and he's there in this place. He's in heaven, basically. And so a lot of people point to the story and they say, Aha! I see what you said and I see what the Bible says elsewhere, but this story convinces me. You go instantly to hell or straight to heaven. But if you, if you think about the story, there are some problems if you're just going to try and understand it as an actual event, as some people translate it. Because number one, Abraham must have a really big bosom for all the, the righteous dead to go there at death, right? Okay. Number two, in the story, the man, the rich man, is in the flames and he's like, Abraham, Abraham, bring me a drop of water to put on my tongue that I might feel better. If you were in a house fire and the local fire department shows up, would you ask for a drop of water to help you? No, you'd ask to be taken out. But if this story is literal, man, this guy, he doesn't have a very good mind. Because I would ask for the Mediterranean Sea to be dumped on me, right? Uh, and, and furthermore, he says, put it on my tongue. According to most people, the soul is what goes to hell. Uh, do souls have tongues? Do souls have body parts that need cooling? Uh, there just are, are, are several challenges, but the bigger challenge is that the Bible elsewhere says you don't go straight to heaven or hell. That Jesus himself, Matthew 25, says, I'm going to divide the sheep and the goats when I return. You'll get your punishment at that time or at a later time. Uh, and actually, there are a number of people who, who look at the story and they say, actually, we think that this is just kind of a folk tale that came probably up out of Egypt. And Jesus took the story and he was telling it to illustrate some points. He had a familiar story. It's kind of like when you tell a joke, you say, oh, you know, there was this guy and he dies and he gets to the gates of heaven and St. Peter's there. And, you know, 
But we're not trying to communicate theology, we're just trying to tell a story. And so that's what's going on here. What is Jesus trying to tell? Simply put, that once you die, your choice has been made. Uh, And even miracles aren't enough to convince somebody who is not willing to be convinced. Accept Jesus now while there's still time. Well, what about worms? Jesus says in another place that there would be, well, the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. What about those passages? Well, I looked those up and it's interesting because Christ is actually quoting from Isaiah 66. Write it down, you can look it up later. Isaiah 66, 24. And as you read Isaiah 66, 24, where Jesus is quoting from, he's not talking about a place of eternal torment. He's talking about a scene where there are dead bodies and there are maggots. Nobody is living. Nobody is being tortured. It's a scene of complete destruction. And by the way, Christ says the worm doesn't die, not the person. If there's a maggot that never dies, and maggots like to eat rotting flesh, it's just going to eat all the rotting flesh that's around it, and there'll be nothing left. Then it'll have to move on to something else to eat, right? It doesn't say the person lives forever. Uh, this, again, is just a symbol of complete total destruction. In fact, in Acts 12.23, Herod was struck down by God. And it says that he was eaten by worms and he died. Uh, a very graphic picture of this. And then there's also passages that talk about weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, I, I looked that up and in every instance of weeping or gnashing of teeth, gnashing is something that people who are really angry at you do at you. David uses this in the Psalms. My enemies are gnashing their teeth at me. The wicked are going to gnash their teeth at God or at the righteous. It's somebody who doesn't care about you and wishes you evil. And so Jesus is saying, for those who experience hellfire, there's going to be weeping of sorrow and there's going to still be defiance against God. And it's, it's, a, it's a pretty graphic picture, but it's a realistic one. Uh, gnashing their teeth, saying, God, why? Even after they've realized the punishment is just. A defiant attitude that's not repentant. Cast into outer darkness, another phrase that appears in the Gospels. Uh, almost every single time darkness appears in the New Testament, it's referring to spiritual darkness. The only time it's literal darkness is when Christ is on the cross and and there was darkness in the land. Everywhere else that I found, it was spiritual darkness. And Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. John 3, 19, here's the condemnation, that men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So, So the people who experience the second death have rejected the light. They say, no, we want the darkness instead. And so what God does is he gives them what they want. If you want darkness, you're going to the darkest darkness, which is, since there's nowhere you can go from God, the only way to escape God is to no longer be living. No longer alive. Now what about angels cast down to hell? There's that verse in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, that God cast the angels down to hell, they're bound there, reserved for judgment, etc. People say, aha, I got you there. Well, what's interesting is that's the only place that that word is used. It's not 
the normal word for hell that's used, Gehenna. This is the word Tartarus. And it's basically a place of darkness or the underworld or something. And it's a fitting symbol for our world of sin. But the passage there in 2 Peter 2 verse 4, it says that they are reserved for judgment. Not currently undergoing judgment. Usually the word for hell in the New Testament is the word Gehenna. Which points to the, the valley of Hinnom. Uh, it comes from, from that same word. Hinnom was a valley that was on the south side of Jerusalem, a deep ravine where they would throw their trash. They would throw their corpses. If they, you know, the butcher was done butchering the meat, take it out, throw it over there. It was a place where things were burned. They would light fires there. The fires would keep going because they wanted to burn it up. There probably were, were maggots there eating, doing the thing that they do. Uh, but it's, it was obvious that the, the corpses there were not experiencing torture. They just were being totally destroyed. So it's been very affirming as I've gone through every single passage I could find where Jesus talks about the second death. And again and again, it points to total destruction. Total destruction. Jesus also said that uh, the whole body is thrown into Gehenna, into hell. According to most people, it's just the soul that goes there. But Jesus says, no, no, no. If your right eye causes you to sin, you just pluck it out. Because it's better for you to go enter into life with one eye, he's speaking met metaphorically, than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Again, it's the whole self. There's no disassociation between soul and body. We are souls. Jesus said, we go, if someone rejects him, their whole body goes in. Um, now what about eternal fire? Because there are passages that talk about fire that lasts forever, right? What about those passages? Well, it's interesting, in one of them, Matthew 25, 41, it says that the eternal fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is primarily not prepared for people, it's primarily prepared for the devil. Can you say amen? Because God doesn't want anybody. But the devil and his angels, their fate has been sealed. They're not going to repent, but we still have the opportunity to repent. But speaking of eternal fire, in Jude verse 7, it says, Sodom and Gomorrah are an example of eternal fire. And they're not burning anymore. The word forever and eternal often just simply means as long as life lasts. As long as life lasts. In the Old Testament, slaves who, who were giving themselves fully to their master would serve them forever, it says. Or as long as life lasts. In some cases, it was seven years. Then there are passages that talk about fire not being quenched. What about those passages? Well, it's interesting because in Ezekiel 20, it talks about I'm going to set a fire in the southern desert, and it's not going to be quenched. If you go to southern Israel, there's no area that's still burning and can't be quenched. Or, or in Edom, God says, I'm going to do this in Edom. Jeremiah 17, he also says, I'm going to set a fire in Israel's gate, Jerusalem's gate. Unquenchable fire. Well, I'm going to Israel in August, and, and I'll look. But I don't think I'm going to get there and find that the gates are still burning, right? 
But I want you to go to this one passage because this is too, this is too awesome. Go to Isaiah 34. Isaiah 34, verses 9 through 10. This is going to kind of bring it all together for a lot of these passages. Isaiah 34, verse 9 and 10. But we've seen today, what did Jesus teach about the second death? He taught that it was permanent. It was death that lasts forever. Happens after the second resurrection, which happens after the thousand years. Culminates in that lake of fire, after which God makes the earth brand new again. But nobody has to go through it if they accept Christ, entrusting their life to the Savior. For all these tricky verses or verses that seem to confuse, the more you study into it, the more you realize, oh, it just is a, a symbol of complete destruction. So Isaiah 34, verse 9 and 10, it says, Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur, her land will become blazing pitch. Sounds like a, a hot fire based on pitch. In verse 10, it says it will not be quenched day or night. Its smoke will rise for how long? Forever. Edom. Smoke rising forever. Notice what it says. It says from generation to generation it will lie desolate. What? I thought there was going to be fire there forever. Now it's saying desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. Who's going to live there? Verse 11. The desert owl, the screech owl will possess it. The great owl and the raven will nest there. I don't know a lot about birds. Uh, we'd have to talk to our bird specialists in the congregation. But I'm guessing that the desert owl, screech owl, the great owl, and the raven don't like to live in a furnace of fire. Would you say that that's fairly... Right. So... It's saying there's going to be unquenchable fire, the smoke's going to rise forever. In other words, the consequences. And then, after it's all done, well, birds are going to live there. Birds are going to live there. In other words, the fire's going to do its job. It's going to be hot while it's, while it's lit, but then it's going to go out, and birds are going to move back in. Eagles, owls, whatever it says. That's what's going to happen. A complete destruction. So is it making sense? You know, every passage we look at, there's always, it, it always makes sense the more you study it out. But the good news this morning, because this subject can be a little depressing, but the good news is we're alive and we can choose where we want to go. Amen? Amen? Our God is a God of justice. Now some people say, well, why does... Why doesn't God just let the wicked stay dead? You know, they're dead. Just let them be dead and never wake them back up again. Well, that may be good for you and me, but think about Hitler. Let's suppose that Hitler is not going to be saved, and there's a good chance that he won't. Is it fair for him never to come to justice for what he's done? Six million people dead because of him. Is it fair? Would God truly be just just to let him rest and never come to trial. No, our God is a God of justice. And for those who have been victimized by the evil in our world, God's going to make sure that everyone gets 
what's just and what's fair. And the only reason we don't get justice is because we accept the mercy and Jesus takes our justice, took our justice upon his shoulders. Amen? So our God is too just not to let people experience the just punishment. But it's a just one and then it ends. Story's been told about a lumberjack who went out from his cabin to go into the forest to do his work, chopping down trees. He came home eventually and he saw that somehow the fire uh, had not fully gone out in his hearth and it had actually burnt down his house. And he was obviously disappointed as, as everyone would be. And he's just looking around the ashes of what used to be his home trying to find anything of value, just trying to figure out what to do with his life. And he noticed that one of his hens had been charred, his chicken, charred totally, just dead right there in all the ashes. And he just kind of moved it with his foot. And as he did, he saw several little chicks, yellow chicks, scurry out underneath, from underneath its mom. And he realized that when the flames had gotten hot, this mama hen had made a decision to go through the flames so that her children wouldn't have to. Those flames killed her, but in her death, she saved and gave life to her kids. We have a mama hen. We have a savior who's done what that hen did. And nobody has to experience the second death who accepts the sacrifice of our Savior. So do you have a Savior today? Yes. I do. And we need to tell others about that Savior and about our God who is just and merciful. Let's pray. Dear God, we are thankful that nobody's being tortured right now. And we're thankful that when we get to heaven... We're not going to be thinking about our loved ones who didn't make it and worried about them being tortured. Lord, we're thankful that your punishment is just and it's merciful. And we're thankful today that we can say, Jesus, I want you in my life. I've accepted you and I'm so grateful that I will spend eternity with you. Let us have the boldness and the opportunities this week to share the message of hope with others. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a happy Sabbath. And come back next week. We're talking about what Jesus taught about Sabbath. Take care. <laughs>